Ever since Jack was a boy, he wanted to go to the moon. He would lay in bed staring out at the distant nightlight in the dark sky and whisper to himself, someday I'll go there. When Jack was four years old, he told his mother, Mommy, I'm going to jump to the moon. And she smiled and replied, just be sure to blow me a kiss when you get there. So every night, Jack excitedly headed outside to jump. He only ever jumped a few inches off the ground, but it was a few inches closer to the moon. At first, Jack's mother considered it endearing. But as the weeks, months, and even years passed, and Jack was still jumping, she grew increasingly anxious for him. She pleaded with her son, please, Jack, stop jumping. No one can jump to the moon. But Jack kept jumping. As a boy, Jack was happy to jump. At four years old, he actually believed he might one day jump to the moon. But as the years passed, Jack's optimism turned into delusion. His boyhood giggles turned into sobs of anger and frustration. Jack lost grip of reality. Hopeless and unable to jump, Jack kept jumping, never making it any closer to the unreachable moon. One day, Jack fell to the ground. He couldn't jump anymore. Jack had jumped himself into utter exhaustion and hopelessness. He laid on the ground sobbing at the reality that he would never reach the moon. Then he showed up. His suit, brilliant white, an American flag sewn on one shoulder, the NASA logo sewn on the other. Jack could see his own reflection in the man's helmet. The guest picked up Jack's collapsed body and carried him to the shuttle and gently settled him in. With over 7.8 million pounds of thrust, the engines and rocket boosters exploded and the astronaut transported Jack into orbit. In time, they reached the moon. The astronaut carried Jack out and put his boots in the dust. There Jack stood, amazed at the sight of Earth 238,000 miles away. He could hardly believe that he was on the moon. He hadn't jumped there. He'd been taken there by another. With a new perspective and overwhelming thankfulness, Jack blew his mother a kiss from the moon. Friends, trying to do a bunch of good deeds in order to be right with God is like trying to jump to the moon. It's impossible. No one can jump to the moon and no one can be right with God by doing some good deeds. Many people across the world, even some who consider themselves Christians, think they can jump to the moon because they think they can do enough good to be right with God. How naive. That's not how it works. No one is justified before God by the law or good works, and to try is to be delusional. Saints, God tells us plainly in his word, the righteous shall live by faith. And yet all around us, people try to jump to the moon, to rely on works of the law as your means of being accepted, loved, and right with God is to not rely on Christ as your only means and to remain under God's curse. On the authority of God's word, I encourage you, when you trust in Christ alone for salvation, the view from the moon is amazing, breathtaking. Saints, here's a simple encouragement for you. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we would be blessed and grateful in him now and forever.
The law and gospel appear together vividly in Galatians 3 to lead us to blessings and gratitude in Christ. This, this is not a try-harder message. This is not a self-help help message. And with all due respect, this is not an Oprah Winfrey network message. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, a message of redemption, a message of blessing, a message of promise. The Apostle Paul said in verse 9, So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Then in verse 10, Paul explains why it is only those of faith who are blessed. And so here's the point as we move into verse 10. Everyone who believes they are right with God because they do good things is actually under God's curse. Look at verse 10. For, so here comes Paul's explanation, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Verse 10 was a scary, uh, scary thought and a scary indictment for the Galatian church. If indeed they wanted to abandon the gospel and to return to circumcision, return to the dietary laws, return to the, the moral law as their means, uh, which they were right with God, then... They were under God's curse. Paul was kind to say it. It's popular for Christians today to tell everyone without exception, both believers and unbelievers, God is for you. You'll hear that. That's only true of believers. According to Paul, self-righteous unbelievers who trust in their own good deeds to make them right with God are actually not accepted by God at all. They are actually under God's curse. God curses the self-righteous, which means that God's holy and just wrath is upon the self-righteous because of their unbelief. Unbelief instigates God's opposition John 3.36 states plainly, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friends, God is straightforward. He imposes judgment upon self-righteous people who rely on works of the law, and he promises to destroy them. The truth is, God is against everyone who relies on works of the law for righteousness. Now, how does Paul substantiate that point? He uses an Old Testament scripture. In verse 10, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Paul writes, for, so here's his defense of the point that he just made, it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And Deuteronomy 28 only advances the point, that truth. So why are people who rely on works of the law for justification cursed by God? Simple, because God says that everyone who does not do all that he commands in his holy and good law is cursed. Absolute compliance is demanded. God does not accept partial obedience. He demands Perfect obedience. Consider the phrase, all things written in the book of the law. That includes everything in God's law, including the moral law. 
So just think. Just think about it. One mistake and you're cursed. One misstep and you're cursed. Is that hopeful news? Is that good news? This message, it offends self-righteous people who care more about self-esteem than truth. The law and gospel makes self-righteous people feel very, very uncomfortable. But the law, the law does us a big favor. The law shows us our sin and unworthiness and warns us of God's coming wrath. The law is helpful, very helpful, but it is no remedy for our sinful condition. God's law is good, but it's not good news for guilty people. God's law is good, but it doesn't promise blessing to guilty people. Dr. Riken said, quote, the problem with the law then is not the law. The problem with the law is our sin. Since we cannot keep the law, the law cannot bless us. All it can do is curse us, placing us under the condemnation of divine wrath, end of quote. Verse 10 is devastating for self-righteous people. It condemns them. But verse 10 is not devastating for believers who rely on Christ alone for justification. See, believers, they hear verse 10, and they're thankful for the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ by which God accepts them and loves them instead of curses them. Uh, Believers hear verse 10, and they're increasingly glad, increasingly hopeful that they belong to Christ and are forever sheltered from God's curses. Verse 10 actually reminds believers of what Christ has rescued them from and the limitless comfort and peace and joy that they have in union with Christ. Next point, no one is right with God because they are good and keep God's law. Verse 11 says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. There it is again. This time Paul says, it is evident. Not only is it evident in God's word, but it is evident in our human experience. Jesus aside, do you know anyone who is morally perfect? I mean, case closed. Why would Paul say so emphatically that no one is justified before God by the law? Why make that point? Easy. Because no one is able to perfectly obey the law. Galatians makes absolutely no sense if human beings are morally good. You just can't make sense of it. Scripture and radical human depravity confirm this statement. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. And in verse 12, Paul distinguished between the law and gospel. He said, but the law is not of faith. See, the law and the gospel, they're both really good. Uh, But they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. The law says, the one who does God's commandments shall live by God's commandments, meaning do the law and live, break the law and die. You've heard that before. That's the covenant of works. So the law says, do this and live, whereas the gospel, the gospel is different. The gospel says, trust Christ who has done this for you and live. In verse 12, Paul quotes Leviticus 18, verse 5, 
to further substantiate his point on justification by faith alone. Leviticus 18, 4 and 5 say this. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. That's essentially the covenant of works. Do exactly what God says and live. Fail to do what God says and die. That's not intended to boost your self-esteem, nor is it intended to be what you rely on, what you turn to. Relying on the law is like relying on dental floss to rope cattle. It's just not going to work. It's not going to work. You can either hear the law and swell up with pride and self-righteousness by trusting in your own ability to do the law or, or, You can hear the law and feel the impossibility of it. Be wrecked and humbled by it and then trust in the perfect merits of Christ given you in the gospel and enjoy justification under the law. Remember, God opposes the proud but gives grace to whom? The humble. The humble. I think John Calvin nailed it when he said, quote, we admit that the doers of the law, if there were any such, are righteous, but since that is a conditional agreement, all are excluded from life because no man performs that righteousness which he ought, end of quote. Everyone is excluded from life. Calvin was saying that no one actually does the law, Therefore, everyone deserves death, not life. Perfect law keepers live. Well, verse 11 is true of both unbelievers and believers. Brothers and sisters, even though you are counted righteous by God through faith alone, and even though you have the Holy Spirit in you empowering you to do good works, you are still incapable of perfectly obeying the law, which means you continually need Christ's righteousness, which you continually have through faith alone. A a, a Christian remains justified under the law, not because God has made them inherently righteous or infused righteousness into them, nor because they obey God by the Spirit. A Christian remains justified under the law because Christ remains their righteousness and God continues to count their righteous, their faith as if it was righteousness. Listen carefully. Enduring faith is necessary for enduring righteousness under the law because through enduring faith alone, the righteousness of Christ remains the believer's. It may be tempting for you to think that Christ's righteousness imputed to you through faith was enough to get you saved. But now that you're saved, you need to do works of the law to stay saved, to stay accepted, to stay loved. That's not so. We are spiritually alive because through faith, God has united us to Christ who continues to be our justification and our power to live to God. 
Our good works will never, ever, ever, ever be the cause of our justification, nor the cause of our sanctification, but will always be the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We are justified under the law by faith, and we even make progress in the Christian life and do good works by faith as the Spirit works in our working. What difference does this make? Ah, a big difference, a big difference. Calvin summarized it well. He said, quote, to be justified by our own merit and to be justified by the grace of another are two schemes which cannot be reconciled. One of them must be overturned by the other, end of quote. It's either or, it's not both and. So when someone relies on works of the law to justify them before God, they reject the gospel and therein Christ himself. The moment someone relies on Christ alone to justify them before God, they are indeed justified, accepted, and truly loved by God. This doctrine of justification by faith alone is important because it explains the infinite glory of Jesus Christ and is the key to our everlasting joy and pleasure in Christ. Now we're building here. Next point. Only those who trust in Christ alone are counted righteous and therefore live. Paul adds a quote from Habakkuk 2 verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Right there is the gospel in the Old Testament. Old Testament believers like Abraham were justified by faith alone in Christ alone. See, see, the truly righteous live forever and don't suffer eternal death because of their faith and union with the crucified and risen Christ. It is not good news to tell sinners the righteous shall live by the law. You will be righteous if you do the law perfectly. That is just not good news. It's damning news. It's terrible news. The law brings death, but it is incredible news, the best of news to tell sinners the righteous shall live by faith. The question is, faith in what? Well, verses 10 and 12 are the law, except for the striking little phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. That's gospel. And in verses 13 and 14, Paul explains the gospel as it relates to the law. Listen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Folks, verses 13 and 14, they're the gospel. In the echo of the law's condemning roar, Paul proclaims the gospel. Christ redeemed sinners from the curse of the law so that they would be blessed and grateful in him now and forever. That's the good news of Christ our Redeemer. Think about verse 13. What does it mean to be redeemed by Christ? What it's fancy language. What is that? Richard I was king of England from 1189 to 1199. He was called Richard the Lionheart because he was a military virtuoso. Uh, he commanded his own army, get this, at age 16. His own army. He was a, a central commander of the Third Crusade. 
1192, King Richard was sailing back from the Crusades and was shipwrecked, forcing him and his cronies to travel disguised as Knights of Templar through Central Europe. While traveling through Vienna, he was identified and captured and eventually turned over to Henry VI, the Holy Roman Emperor. Henry VI held King Richard for ransom to raise money for his army and for his conquest of southern, um, southern Italy. He asked for 150,000 marks for King Richard's release, which is today, by some calculations, a staggering $3.3 billion. England paid to get their king back. Richard was freed. You could say King Richard was redeemed from captivity. He was purchased from captivity. When Paul said Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, he simply means that Christ made the payment to free all God's chosen people from the curse of the law. Saints, Christ bought our freedom from the curse of God's holy law. Later in chapter 4, Paul explains that Christ was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's amazing. That's the gospel. Christ paid to free us from the curse of the law so that we would be sons and daughters of God, adopted. But how? How could Jesus Christ rescue us from the law's curse. What payment did Jesus make? Paul says, by becoming a curse for us. Beloved brothers and sisters, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of God's holy and good law by becoming a curse for us. That means Jesus Christ is our substitute. He took our place and our curse. As, as lawbreakers, we were cursed by God, but in order to buy our freedom, Jesus Christ became cursed by God instead of us. He was the payment for us. This means that Christ suffered the justice and righteous fury of God against evil for his church. Christ suffered death for his church. And Paul explains how in verse 13, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. There's the shame of the cross. Hanged on a tree is big. Paul quoted Deuteronomy 21, verses 23. Verse 23. Listen to how Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23 read. Listen to this. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Hanging a man on a tree not only displayed the man's crimes or sins against God and against man, but it made a statement, that hanged man is cursed by God. When God gave this law to Moses, he had his crucified son in mind. 
Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, foreshadows Christ crucified as redemption for cursed sinners. In becoming a curse for us, Christ was hanged on the tree as if he was guilty, as if he was cursed by God. But, but when you think about it, that just doesn't make sense. Jesus was innocent. He wasn't cursed. Exactly. Exactly. And friends, this week as I was thinking about the curse of the law and Christ redeeming us by becoming a curse for us, I thought about the eternal death and destruction that we deserve. And I thought, if, if we deserve the curse of the law, which is death and eternal destruction in hell, then Christ in his sufferings must be sufficient payment for the eternal death and destruction of all of God's elect. And that blows my mind. Second Thessalonians 1.9 talks about sinners suffering the punishment of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. How can we comprehend eternal destruction? And then, how can we comprehend the value of Jesus Christ as the sufficient payment to ransom all God's people from eternal destruction? I can't comprehend the extent of Christ's atonement. Friends, the magnitude of the cross and Christ's atonement for sin is is beyond me. I don't know how to describe the glory of the cross. Its magnificence and beauty and power far surpass my comprehension in any words that I could say to describe it. All that I know is that Christ is unfathomably valuable and glorious and wonderful to cover the full curse of the law for you and for me. No one else could do it. Only He could do it. Certainly not you and me by our law-keeping God accepts us because God accepted His own Son as the infinitely valuable ransom for our souls. There was no other way to spare us from the curse except that God give His only Son to be cursed on a tree in our place. The the shame, in shame rather, in shame, the righteous one hung on the tree bearing our curse in order to take us for himself, so in him we would become the righteousness of God. Be sure of it. In the gospel message of a crucified and cursed Christ is substitutionary atonement. Or you could say vicarious redemption. Or you could say it more simply, Christ cursed in our place as the payment for our release. Essential to the gospel is double imputation, our sin to Christ, Christ's righteousness to us through faith. When Paul said the righteous shall live by faith, he meant faith in the crucified and cursed Christ who became a curse in order to redeem us from the curse. Faith faith is being confident that Christ redeemed you from the curse by becoming a curse for you. And if you'd rather not trust in Christ, but would rather rely on your own ability to do good works, then you are still cursed. Who among us can jump to the moon? Not I. Too many people are frustrated, angry, bitter, and exhausted as they try. 
Here's the secret to true blessing and thankfulness. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we would be blessed and grateful in him now and forever. The last point is wonderful. Only those who trust in Christ alone are redeemed, blessed, and grateful in Christ now and forever. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, the nations, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Red, brown, yellow, black, and white, the nations through faith alone are made right. The blessing of Abraham, the blessing of being saved by grace, the blessing of being made right with God did not come to the Gentiles through the law, but rather through faith in Christ Jesus. The the law is not the means of blessing. Christ is the means of blessing, and we have Christ through faith. Then in Christ, the law is a blessing. Got to get the order of these things right. Not only are we made right with God in Christ, but we receive the promised spirit in Christ through faith. Possessing the indwelling spirit is part of being blessed by God. Remember that Paul wrote earlier, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The gospel is not simply that believers from all nations are counted righteous under the law, but that believers from all nations receive God through faith. God is the blessing. When you buy a car and the notary stamps it, it's a stamp, a seal of the sale. The seal authenticates the sale. How does God seal your redemption? He gives you his Holy Spirit to live inside you. So how do the nations know they are in Christ and blessed along with Abraham? And it's simple. They receive the promised spirit as a seal. Edmund Clowney wrote, quote, The spirit certifies his promise, his pledge to us. Indeed, the spirit is God's keeping of his promise. God's deed of purchase is sealed to the day of redemption, not merely by an outward sign, as circumcision was a seal of Abraham's faith, Romans 4.11, but by the keeping of the promise of the Father, as Jesus said. The coming of the Spirit is the blessing promised to Abraham. Paul, therefore, speaks of the Spirit as God's down payment on full and final salvation, end of quote. You receiving the Holy Spirit through faith, is God's way of sealing the deal for you. You belong to Christ, and the Holy Spirit assures you of that reality from within you, but the Spirit does more for you. The Spirit makes you so grateful for Christ that you want to live for God in obedience to God's law. Saints, God puts desires into you and power into you to do the law, though imperfectly, which assures you that you belong to Christ. Listen, all of this talk for weeks on justification by faith alone is not meant to make you academics. It's it's to make you liberated lovers of God. Here's what the doctrine of justification by faith alone did for Martin Luther. This is amazing. Luther said this. 
Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him. But when, by the Spirit of God, I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Are you tired? Are you weary? Are you disheartened? Are you totally drained? Then be comforted and rest in this one little truth. The righteous shall live by faith. Jesus said, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Come, come, dear one, to Christ and find rest. Some authors, they, they want to give you seven steps to having your best life now and living at your full potential. I don't think that's good news. There's better news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we would be blessed and grateful in him now and forever. Let's pray. Father, you are so tender. I love how Jesus tells us hardworking, unrighteous sinners, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We will not find rest for our souls in working harder and trying to earn your acceptance and love, which we already have in Christ alone, by faith alone. So God, I just simply ask that you do a work of the Spirit today to give us rest and comfort and assurance and gratitude and joy in knowing that we belong to Christ and that through faith we have all the promises of God in Christ. God, free us from our legalism. Free us so we can enjoy Jesus more and more. And know him deeper and deeper because he is fantastic. God, help us not to jump to the moon, but to go there with Christ. Because the view from the moon is amazing. Show us your infinite glory in Christ. For his glory and his fame. Amen.